is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories that touch on every part of life. And one theme that cuts across all of them is innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book entitled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into a few of those inventions now. Tim, let's start off with the story of the plow. You said it ultimately made our modern economy possible. How is that? Well, it's a wonderful example of how technology has profound effects on society. We think about technologies as solving problems. So with the plow, what's the problem? I want to grow crops. Uh, The soil's not very fertile. I need to break up the surface of the soil. So I I invent the plow. But of course, that's just the beginning. Uh, Then all the social changes begin. So with the case of the plow, it created uh, a surplus. It created a harvest that you could store somewhere at the the end of the year, uh, which meant uh, you had an incentive to form up in big gangs. These days we call them armies and go and take the grain in someone else's barn. Um, it meant that you could support uh, a, uh, an elite, um, people who thought, uh, who planned, bureaucrats, accountants, priests. Uh, it, it meant you could support cities. And with cities, of course, comes the whole of civilization. So uh, you could really say this is where the whole thing started, whether, whether you like it or not, with the plow. And whether you like it or not is true, because some people don't like it, and lots of people do. Let's talk about barbed wire. You say this, there was a reason that American farmers were so hungry for barbed wire. A few years earlier, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Homestead Act. Talk about that. So that act said... Anybody who wants to move to the, to the West, to the Midwest, and to put up a fence and to farm some land for five years, um, men, women, freed slaves, anyone who, who wants to do that, that land will be theirs at the end of a few years. So it seems like a huge opportunity. The only trouble is when these new settlers get to the, the great American prairie, they realize there is no wood, or certainly there's not enough wood to spare putting up miles and miles of fences. And so if they want to claim land, uh, and in particular to keep off these tough longhorn cattle from trampling all over the place, they need a source of fencing. So this is one of those situations, sometimes people invent things and they never know what, what it's going to be used for. So the classic is the laser the laser's invented, and it's a solution looking for a problem. Complete op- opposite with barbed wire. Everybody knew what the problem was. It's how do we make inexpensive fencing that doesn't require a lot of wood? And there were huge efforts. Lots and lots of patents for different fencing techniques emerged from the, the American Midwest at the time. Lots of people trying to solve the problem. Uh, the American government issuing reports saying, We need fencing material. And then about 10 years later, J.F. Glidden of DeKalb, Illinois, produces this patent for this technology. And it it is the first recognizably modern barbed wire where you you have a little twist. You have two two pieces of wire together. You twist one around the other uh, in order to keep these barbs secure so they don't slide up and down the wire. And that's really barbed wire as we know it even today and it was immediately a sensational hit so within a few years 
um, the the factories of of Glidden and his associates were producing over two hundred and fifty thousand miles of barbed wire each year. Uh, but as with the plough, it it created winners and it created losers. It completely reshaped the American landscape, and it was just one of those way things where the president Abraham Lincoln had granted people property rights, and yet those property rights are really no good unless there's some practical technology for defending the property rights, and it was barbed wire. Let's talk about Google search. That's number five in your book. And by the way, we're talking to Tim Harford, his latest book, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, Google Search. Well, it would be impossible to leave it out, wouldn't it? it it's bec- I was trying to describe to my wife the other day, I was using a search engine on um, a newspaper website, and it, it wasn't working very well. Uh, and I was saying, oh, Google works so well. This search engine's so bad, I can't Google anything. So even when I was trying to describe the process of searching for something not using Google, I was still using the verb to Google. So it's, it's just... Um, it's just transformed the way that we access the internet, uh, that we access the World Wide Web. I'm old enough to remember the world before Google and the internet before Google. And you, you would discuss strategies for how to find things. So you would say, oh, if, um, if you know, for example, that a particular person has been working on a problem and you want to find some information, if you search for their name, that might help because... It's completely useless to search for an actual phrase or a bit of content. That's never going to work. But maybe if you search for someone's name. When Google came along, suddenly you would type stuff into the search bar and you would actually find it. And that that has been completely transformative. And, of course, it continues to, to reshape the economy because now it's become more and more local. These search engines, they're on our phones. Um, you're, you're, so you're... Attention is being directed. You, you want to search for a place to have a drink nearby. Um, you, you've been locked out of your house. You need to find a locksmith. Google is trying to solve these problems, sometimes with great success, sometimes not. And enormous amounts of, info, uh, of uh, effort are devoted to where you come on that Google search ranking. If you're on page three of the Google search ranking, you're absolutely nowhere. So it, it's, it, it's an insight into the way that... Um, a particular technology can unlock a whole world of information out there. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear all that we do as it relates to authors. And we've done a good 60 interviews with some of the best writers in this country, everyone from David Mamet to, of course, the great David McCullough. Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez now brings us the story of someone you likely don't know named David Rubenstein. But you'll be glad to have met him. David Rubenstein grew up in Baltimore. My parents were blue-collar workers. My father dropped out of high school to go into World War II, came back, met my mother. She dropped out of high school as well to marry him. He worked in the post office his entire career. I was born more than nine months after my parents were married in 1948. I was their only child and raised in a kind of Jewish ghetto in Baltimore. The, school, the, the neighborhoods in Baltimore were very rigidly segregated by race and religion. The United States Supreme Court outlawed that in 1948. In other words, they said in the case called Shelley v. Kramer, you cannot have mortgages that forbid people to sell to Jews or blacks or other people. Baltimore never quite got the word, so this, the custom still existed. So in the northwest part of Baltimore, um, Jews tended to live there. They couldn't really buy homes in other parts. So Baltimore had a fairly large Jewish population, and virtually everybody I knew was Jewish before I was 13. And so I lived in a modest house that was a row house. I went back and looked not long ago, and these houses were all 800 square feet. The schools that I went to as for elementary and junior high school were largely Jewish, but then I went to an all-city high school, and it was, I would say, about one-third Jewish, one-third white, non-Jewish, and one-third uh, African-American. I went to college at Duke, where I got a scholarship. It was not a basketball scholarship. Got a full scholarship to go to law school at the University of Chicago. And my interest in those days was not in making money. I had no interest in it. My parents had no money, and my world was not a world of money. So the role models that I had were people who had served in government and given back to their country. In my case, my sixth grade teacher went over John Kennedy's inaugural address with me and my classmates, saying that, in effect, it was an historic speech. And as we now know, his call to public service was one that resonated with many people in my generation, and it did with me. So my real interest in practicing law was not to make a lot of money, but really to give back to society and be in government. That's what I liked in politics. So I wasn't a great lawyer. Nobody said, this is the next Clarence Darrow or Edward Bennett Williams. And so I was really interested in going to Washington. So I got an offer to go interview with somebody who was running for president. That person was named Jimmy Carter. I didn't think he had a chance of being president. He was a peanut farmer for Georgia and only been governor of Georgia for four years. And how could anybody with so limited amount of government experience be elected president of the United States, I thought. And plus, he was from the South. But I went to work there. He was 33 points ahead of Gerald Ford when I joined, and he won by one point. So my contribution wasn't that great since he was doing much better before I showed up. But at the age of 27, I became the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States, a job I obviously wasn't qualified for three years out of law school, but I wasn't sure anybody in the staff was qualified. We we're all very, very young. As I like to say, one of my jobs was to fight inflation. I got it to 19%, um, which is a record. Nobody's gotten it that high since. But I thought it was great fun. You're, when you're riding around on Air Force One and Marine One and going to Camp David advising the President of the United States when you're 27, that's a thrill that uh, very few are fortunate enough to get. And I always remember when a couple of times when I would walk out of the Oval Office, just the President and me, get on the Marine One, get on the helicopter, my parents would be on the South Lawn watching me and they'd saying, how did this happen? My, my, my boy is now uh, advisor to the President of the United States. I'm not sure why Carter let me do this, but I got to know him reasonably well. 
Um, I thought, okay, Carter's going to be reelected because most presidents get reelected. And while we had hostages, and while we had gas lines, and while we had high inflation and low economic growth, maybe a recession, in effect, I figured, how can anybody not vote for Jimmy Carter again because he's smart and he's honest, and the person we're running against, Ronald Reagan, is old. He's 69 years old, in age ready for a nursing home, I thought. I'm now 70, though. I was then 31. So be careful what you wish for. We wanted to run against Ronald Reagan. We begged to run against him. He turned out to be a superior candidate, and he won. So I figured, okay, this is bad. I'm not going to be the senior domestic advisor in the second term. But okay, not a big problem because so many people had come to me over the years when I worked in the White House and said, you're a bright young man, you're really talented. Whenever you want a job, call me up. So the day after we lost the election, I started calling all these people and they never called me back because who wants a Carter White House aide when you're out of power and there's no value to knowing how Carter's going to think or do. So I applied to lots of law firms and really got nowhere because in truth, I was a 31-year-old lawyer, ex-Carter White House aide who had only practiced law two years and my skill set wasn't in great demand. And my mother was saying, well, David, why don't you get a job right after January 20th? And I said, well, I have so many offers, I don't know which one to take. So I kept telling her for months and months and months I had so many offers, but I actually had none. Finally, somebody felt sorry for me, and I think in May or June, I finally got a job offer to start at the bottom of a law firm. I started practicing law again, and the, the appropriate verb is practice because I wasn't really that good at it. So um, I didn't really enjoy it because my job was really to get clients, and I wasn't sure I had anything to sell that was that wonderful. So I uh, did it for a number of years, I would say with modest success. I wasn't going to be the greatest lawyer in Washington. And then what happened was something that changed my life when I read about a man who had done a, something called a leverage buyout. Bill Simon did a leverage buyout of a company called Gibson Greeting Cards. He bought it for roughly, I think, $230 million or so from uh, RCA. He put up essentially $1 million of his own money and he made roughly $80 million in about two and a half years. So when I read that, I said, whoa, that's better than practicing law. Whatever leverage buyout is, I ought to figure that out. And so I kept talking about this with people, hoping that someday I would get people together who actually had finance experience and maybe I could join as a lawyer. Uh, one day, somebody who I've been talking to about doing this, um, I had put him in touch with three or four people who would team up with him and maybe they would build it together. But he couldn't find anybody compatible with him and he didn't seem like he was going to do it. And then he showed up in my office one day and said, I found the person I'm going to do this with. I said, who is it? It's you. To me, I'm really not a finance person. He said, that's okay, we can do it together. So I gave him a little room in my uh, conference area and we started planning a new firm. We then recruited two other people in Washington who had finance experience and we started in 1987 with four partners really and we hired a few people. We named it the Carlisle Group after a hotel in New York that seemed like a nice name. We had no money, we had no reputation, we had no experience. But we thought, okay, this is America, maybe something good will work out. So we ultimately started doing deals, and we came up with some deals that worked, came up with some clever ideas, and after 32 years, the firm has become one of the largest private equity firms in the world. And uh, as a result of that, my partners and I have become fairly wealthy by normal human standards, not by the Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos standards, but by normal human standards, certainly more than I ever thought I would achieve in terms of financial success. Sometime in my 50s, 
Forbes magazine wrote an article about my partners and me and how successful we've been and what our net worth was. Today, Forbes estimates it at $2 billion. And so I began to realize I needed to start giving away this money, otherwise I will ruin my children's lives, or I'll just spend too much money on personal things like homes or artwork or things that probably aren't essential to day-to-day life. So I, Bill Gates came to see me around that time and asked me about uh, what I was going to do with my money, and I, he said he was starting the giving pledge, and I said, okay, I will sign up for that because I was going to give away probably a lot more than half my money. So I started giving away money in the way that many people who get money start doing it to educational institutions that have been good to me. Uh, I would say 90% of my money still goes to education, medical research, or cultural things. And then I stumbled into something that changed my philanthropic focus a bit. Maybe 5 to 10% of my money goes to this area that I've called patriotic philanthropy. It gets 99% of the attention of what I do with my money, but it's probably less than, less than 10%. And the reason it gets so much attention is, one, people think it's unusual that somebody is putting up money to rebuild the Washington Monument. Why doesn't the government do that? And also, not that many people are doing it. If I give $10 million to fix up the Washington Monument or $18 million to fix up the Lincoln Memorial or $10 million to fix up the Jefferson Memorial or $20 million to fix up Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, people seem to be surprised and think it's a good thing. And you've been listening to David Rubenstein's story, and what a story indeed. Rising up from a, from a tough situation in Baltimore, living in essentially a Jewish ghetto. And David's dead right. America was, in, in fact, segregated in many ways, uh, through ethnicity, through faith. Uh, my Italian ancestry, my grandparents told me that the word Dago, Wap, and discrimination towards particularly Catholics and Italians was a sort of a, an exacta of discrimination, the Irish face the same thing. And so many groups did, but ultimately, the next generation gets it right. We intermarry and we move along towards the arc of harmony in this great country. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, David Rubenstein's story, and a story of what happens when we amass wealth in this country. So many of the folks in this country make it, and then they give it right back to things like education and health and this thing called patriotic giving too. More of David Rubenstein's story after these messages. we continue here with our American stories and David Rubenstein's story. And you know, so many of you who listen, that we love telling stories about this great nation and the civic life of this country and where it all came from. And David Rubenstein is heavily now invested in doing what he calls patriotic philanthropy. And here he is on the British document that began the thunderous shift of power from kings to commoners, the Magna Carta. This all started when I stumbled into buying the Magna Carta, which I didn't realize one could buy. Okay, there are 17 copies that are extant, 15 in British institutions, one in the Australian Parliament, and one that had been owned by a family in its possession for 500 years. They went land poor in the early 1980s. They decided to sell it. Ross Perot preempted an auction, bought it for a million 
and a quarter or something like that and put it on display at the National Archives that we retained ownership. He decided he wanted to sell it um, in I think 2007 in order to get money to give to Iraqi war veterans and so he put it up for sale. I went there and the curator from Sotheby's said it'll probably go to somebody from outside the United States. She knew who the likely buyers were and I thought I knew enough about American history to know that the Declaration of Independence was inspired by the, the rights that were provided in the Magna Carta. In fact, the charters that many of our colonies had said, you have the rights of Englishmen. And that was interpreted to mean that you had the rights of the Magna Carta. So when we had our disputes with England in 1775, 1776, many of the colony leaders said, we, we have the rights of the Magna Carta, we have the rights of the Englishmen, and we're not getting those. So I thought it was important that one copy stay in the United States. So I went back the next night. I did buy it. Now it's stayed here. And so I think its significance is that it's a symbol of the rights and freedoms that democratic governments should give to their people. It's not a perfect document. It had lots of flaws in it. The original copy, for example, in 1215 said, if you owe money to people who are Jewish, you can you know, kind of postpone paying it. Why? Well, the Jews were the money lenders very often because they weren't allowed to do other things in England. And so there were some fairly anti-Semitic provisions in it. The version that I bought in 1297, there's no reference to Jews. Well, I figure, well, maybe they must like Jews better. Turns out they kicked all the Jews out of England in 1270, so no Jewish moneylenders in 1297. In any event, the document, some people would say, is more important in history to the United States than England, because in England it really was ignored after it was issued in the 1200s, and or the 13, 14, 1500s. As Parliament came in, Parliament really became, in effect, the Magna Carta. But it became very significant in this country, really, when our Declaration of Independence was being put together. And then I realized if people want to know more about American history, they sometimes will go see original copies of documents, and here was the only one in the United States they could see, so I thought people would be interested, they'd learn more about American history, and I started buying other historic documents and putting them on display, so rare copies of the Declaration of Independence, Emancipation Proclamation, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so forth, and put them on display in appropriate organizations. And then I got in the habit of fixing up buildings as well, and the, the combination of two, I call it patriotic philanthropy. I suspect in my obituary, people will probably emphasize that more than anything else I've done, rightly or wrongly. The human brain has not yet evolved to the point where if you look at the original copy of the Magna Carta, or if you go visit the Washington Monument, that experience is exactly the same as looking at it on a computer screen. So today, if I told you, you can go look at the original Magna Carta, I'll take you down the street and we'll look at it, you'd say, wow, and you're going to look at it before you go or after you go, you might read more about it. If I flash a computer screen picture of the Magna Carta, you'd say, okay, go on to the next picture. The human brain may evolve differently in hundreds of years, but right now it's still, if you actually see the original something, it's important. So what I try to do is put these documents I buy on display and also fix some of these sites. Why? My theory is, it's not original, but that if you know more about history, you'll be a more informed citizen. Therefore, you would maybe avoid some of the mistakes we've made in the past. A famous Harvard historian, George Santayana, once said, those people that do not remember history are condemned to relive it. And so I've been surprised and disappointed as I've gotten into it to realize that we don't teach history as much as we used to because of the obsession about STEM, which is important. We don't teach civics at all anymore for whatever reason. And so you can go to virtually any college in the United States and graduate without having to take an American history course. And you can graduate from 80% of the American colleges in this country as a history major without having taken an American history course. So recently there's been efforts to kind of recognize that this should change. Some of the worst statistics that I 
cite to people are things like three-quarters of Americans could not name the three branches of government, one-third of Americans could not even name one branch of government, and in a survey recently it turned out that native-born Americans cannot pass the basic citizenship test that you have to pass if you're a naturalized citizen candidate to be. Naturalized citizen candidates have to take this test, 100 questions, you have to get 60 right, and 91% pass. In our case, 49 out of 50 states, the majority of citizens native-born failed this test. Only in Vermont did they pass it. To address the lack of understanding of our own story, David's also organized bipartisan dinners for members of Congress to hear from the best historians like David McCullough and Ron Chernow and put these conversations into a book titled The American Story. Themes are that we think today uh, we have an impeachment process that's uh, underway. But, you know, we've had bitter, bitter disputes before. Even in George Washington's time, he was so frustrated that he almost decided to resign the presidency after just a couple months. He was so frustrated with the politics of it. In fact, a book has come out recently on the fights between members of Congress on the floor of the House and the Senate. And, you know, some famous members of Congress were beaten up by other members of Congress. Clearly nothing is as bad now as we had the Civil War when 600,000 men and women were killed or died. David calls himself a patriot at a time that many don't. For the first time since Gallup asked the question, only a minority of our citizens say they're extremely proud to be American. 47%. You think back, uh, maybe people would not have predicted this 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago or even 5,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago. But humans have more or less divided themselves into countries. And people identify their country as something they're willing to die for. So very few people, there are some people, but very few people are willing to say, I will die for my neighborhood. I'll die for my state. I'll die for my school. I'll die for my gender. I'll die for my race. Some people will. But people say, I'm prepared to die for my country all over the world. There's something about the country which pulls together various strands of human thought and makes people feel that this is something that's worth dying for and sacrificing a lot. So the ultimate sacrifice, what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion, is giving your life. And when you think about it, when World War II occurred, or the Revolutionary War, or the Civil War, people just dropped everything to the volunteer. But in my view, a patriot is believing that it is important to do something to remind people of the plus of your country and try to help make that country better. And so that's what I like to think I'm doing, but obviously a real patriot is also somebody that's prepared to sacrifice their life. And I didn't volunteer to go sacrifice my life in some military conflicts, but for what I am now doing, for my capabilities, I'm trying to be a patriot, but not so much me, but I'm trying to send a signal to others. And so people ask me from time to time, not in a derisive way, why do I put my name on these buildings when I give a gift or something? And I guess I would say that there is an ancient Israeli philosopher who used to say that the best philanthropy is done anonymously, and maybe that's right. Uh, and a lot of philanthropy is anonymous, and some of mine is as well. But when I put my name on something, maybe when my parents were alive, that was because you know, it made them proud. But I try to say to people, look, I came from really, really modest circumstances, and I got lucky, and now I'm giving back to the country. And you, who come from modest circumstances, you should try to do the same thing. So it's really that, and I'm trying to do things that I hope will make the country better or remind people of the, their importance of giving back to the country. So that, that's kind of my view of patriotism.
And you've been listening to David Rubenstein. And make sure to go to Amazon.com and pick up his terrific book, The American Story. And that's The American Story. Also, his podcast is terrific. And he talks with, well, just about every kind of American imaginable. And by the way, he does less of the talking. Actually, he lets the subject talk, which is a, a beautiful thing. And it's a rare thing. He's a great listener. When we come back, we continue with Our American Stories and David Rubenstein's story. with Our American Stories and the final portion of the life story of David Rubenstein. We've learned a lot about how he accumulated his wealth, what he cares about. Let's return to the last part of this story. So I've gotten to the point where I'm reasonably satisfied with the life I've led. Nobody can be completely happy with it. I'm now 70 years old, an age that I thought, generally you're ready for a nursing home, if not something worse than that. Uh, but I'm still in pretty good shape, still vibrant, my brain is still working, the body is reasonably okay, no artificial parts yet or anything like that. So I, um, you know, look back on my life and just wish I had done some things better than I had done, but on the whole, I'm reasonably happy with where I am. And since David brought it up, I asked, what could you have done better? Well, as a young man, I always thought maybe I could be a better athlete. I wasn't a high school All-American athlete. I wasn't a great uh, athlete anywhere. I could have been a better scholar. I was never first in my class. Nobody said this person is Albert Einstein coming along in a new form. Um, as I tell students when I talk to them all the time, if you, if you divide life into three parts, the first third is when you're getting educated and getting ready to be a productive citizen. The second third is when you're really you're building your career and you're really making some real difference in whatever your career might be. And the third third is when you see the benefits of what you've done. I would say the first third of life is not something I won. The first third of life is won, I would say, sometimes by people that are Rhodes Scholars, Supreme Court clerks, White House fellows, presidents of the Harvard Law Review, uh, valedictorians of their class at college or high school. I was none of those things. I, you know, did okay, but not so great that anybody said this man is going to be president of the United States or a prominent business person or prominent government leader of any type. I tell people that if you have won a White House Fellowship or Rhodes Scholarship or the equivalent of great things at a young age, uh, if you rest on your laurels, uh, when you get to the second and third third of your life, you'll find that people like me who weren't all that great but kept working hard might pass you by. And the trick in life is not necessarily to win the first third, but to win the second and third third of life. So very often you'll go back and look at the people that have achieved the most success in life by the time they're 50 or 60 or 70. Very often they were not the superstars in, in their youth. In some cases they were. Bill Clinton clearly was a talented young 
uh, student leader and he became president of the United States. But that seems to be uh, not the norm. It's generally the other way around. The people that are running the world very often are people that nobody thought would be running the world. It, you know, Donald Trump was not thought, I think, to be likely to be president of the United States when he was uh, in the New York Military Academy. I doubt that people thought that Barack Obama, as a talented person as he was, uh, was not going to be president of the United States. Who would have thought Jimmy Carter being president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, so forth. So people who rise up to the top are generally people that have complicated backgrounds. In my own case, I got lucky in the second and third third of my life and really I'm spending the, my time now trying to give back to society and try to make a difference because in the end, all humans of some sense of being want to do something useful with their life and not just um, you know, make a lot of money or just not just or just glide through life. And when I talk to audiences, I often say to them, "Why? Um, how do you want to be remembered?" And think about this: there was a man named Alfred Nobel who sat down to his breakfast table in 1882 or three and read his obituary. Well, actually, it was fake news because it was his brother's obituary. The newspapers got it wrong, but it said, "The merchant of death, the inventor of dynamite, has died. Thank God he's gone." So he said, "Geez, I want to." I don't want that to be my obituary. So he obviously came up with something called the Nobel Prizes. Now, I tell people in the audiences, what would you like your obituary to be? And if you were going to read it tomorrow, would you be happy? And if you had the chance to write it, what would you write? And if you're not completely happy with what you think might be written or what you might write, you have time to do something about it and try to do something that you will be proud of, your children will be proud of, your grandchildren will be proud of, your parents will be proud of, your siblings will be proud of, something that would make the world slightly better. Now, why is it that people want to make the world slightly better? It's like maybe a human concept. There's no evidence that we have that of the other 30 million species on the face of the earth, any of them say, hey, I want to make the world better for uh, my, my uh, descendants. But humans, for some reason, maybe that's why we're humans, we feel we should do something to make the world a slightly better place before we leave this world. And maybe I'm in that category. And it probably gets to our attribute that makes us very different from other species. The Earth itself is five billion years old, more or less, four and a half to five billion years old. But life didn't appear on the Earth to maybe three and a half billion years ago. So the Earth was around for maybe two billion years before any life appeared. And the first life was relatively modest. I would say that humans are only uh, Homo sapiens, not Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal, but Homo sapiens are roughly 400,000 years old. So think about it. The Earth is 5 billion years old, and you know, for a couple billion years, no life, and for you know, a couple billion years, no humans. Then around 400,000 years ago, humans appear. Now, when they appeared in the southeast uh, Africa, where apparently most people believe they first appeared, do you think that the elephants said, oh, these are the people that are going to conquer the Earth because they're so big? No, we weren't that big. Do you think the lions and tigers said, these slow-moving uh, humans, or whatever they're called, they're going to conquer the Earth? No, because we weren't seen as very fast. Or do you think that the gorillas thought that we were going to conquer the Earth? No, because we weren't protected. We didn't have hair, we didn't have fur, and so forth and so on. So we weren't scaring anybody, probably. So what is it that made it possible for humans to, in effect, conquer the Earth and have the ability to change the Earth or destroy the Earth in a way that other animals probably cannot? Well, it's obviously the human brain. Nobody else has a brain like this. And whether you believe in evolution or God creating this brain, it clearly has the ability to create such wonderful ideas or to create things that could blow up the earth like nuclear weapons. So it is the human brain that is the um, greatest invention ever. And 
channeling its capabilities is what really makes life interesting. And so when you go to watch a performing arts show, you're seeing the human brain having created symphonies or ballet or opera, see the wonderful things that were done or Shakespeare play or so forth. The same is true if you go to watch something scientific, you see what humans came up with or, or whatever it might be. So the human brain is really the most amazing thing. And, and after all these years of science, we still don't really know how it works. And we still don't know, really know how to fix brain problems that, that often occur. But we do know that exercising the brain is quite good for it. Well, reading um, is one of the great pleasures of life to me. And, um, you know, my parents were not, as I mentioned, high school educated. They weren't unintelligent, but they just didn't have the benefit of a, a big education. And they, they, didn't, they weren't buying lots of books. They would have some books, but they didn't have that many. Um, in those days, there weren't bookstores floating around very much. I can't remember where people bought books in those days. If you wanted to get a book, you went to a library. My library was called the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And there, you could take out 12 books, as I remember, when you were six years old. You get your library card when you were six, and you could take out 12 books a week. So I would take out the 12 books on a Saturday, and I'd read them all one day, and I had to wait another week before I could take out more books. And for some reason, they didn't have a policy we could come back and, and so for instance, I guess they, I don't know why they did it that way. So you know, I read and just kept reading, and then I would go to the library during the week and read books there, but I couldn't take them out because I'd already taken out my 12 books. So I would just read everything I could, and I enjoyed it. And I realized that if you can read, you can develop a knowledge of a world outside the cloistered world that I lived in. And so reading has always become important to me and been important to me. And you've been listening to David Rubenstein, and what a life story and what a life well lived. And it's so true about that third, that second third, and the third third. And sometimes too much talent in the beginning and too much success can actually be a hindrance. And we had David Mamet talk to us about that in his life story. Remember, he said, talent, I don't know what it is, because he'd watch so many people just persevere and work hard and overcome the obstacle of not being born with prodigious talent. And by the way, make sure to go to Amazon.com and pick up David Rubenstein's terrific book, The American Story. The chapters are short and sweet about some of America's great leaders, and they just want to make you, well, dive in and dig a little deeper after you're done. David Rubenstein's story here on Our American Story. And now it's time for the Why Minutes with Lindsay Marie. The Why Minutes, because why matters. He'll never forget the first time he saw her. He was 38, and he'd been dreaming about her for years, ever since he was a little boy in communist Romania. He and his father would turn their shortwave radio to Voice of America. They'd listen to stories about her promises of freedom and dream of one day seeing her. When Ovidu was 18, he decided to flee Romania. He wanted to pursue his dreams of becoming an architect. As he lay waiting to swim across the Danube River, he felt a rifle against his head. He'd been caught. After finishing five years of hard labor, he was determined as ever to see her. He kept applying for a visa until he was finally approved in 1978. As his plane reached New York, he finally saw her. The mother of exile, Lady Liberty. Two years after working in a casting factory and as a cab driver, he had saved enough to start his own business. In 1985, he received a mass mailing soliciting donations to refurbish Lady Liberty for the centennial. He bid on the rights to make commemorative replicas of her, and he won an exclusive contract from the Ellis Island Foundation. That's when his dream truly came true. 
According to him, he's supplying the entire world with liberty. Only in America could a poor little boy from communist Romania end up pursuing his passion and living out his dreams in such a beautiful way. I guess that's why they call it the American dream. The Why Minutes, because why matters. is our American stories and we tell every kind of story here and today we have a special kind of sports story Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon today we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did here's Catherine I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a, a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, KV Switzer. But 
the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, and he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be a 235-pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand um, why he was so angry. And, and I began thinking, well, it's probably because he's the race director. He thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know, sneak into the race. When all along, you know, I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do. But anyway, um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck. And the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. Even before I finished the race, people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by burly boyfriend. Because in 1967, that's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. The whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here, um, and wasn't the road free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl, and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman. Because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me. And, 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afraid, afraid of him. But along about Heartbreak Hill, about 21 miles into the race, the anger really left me. And it left me with wondering why. Um, and I said, well, that's because he's a product of his time. He's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason, because maybe he believes that, you know, it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this. It was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race. Although, as I said, there were no rules written about this. Um, and I sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time. But then I got angry at women and I kind of wondered where they were. You know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal 
for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt, felt very empowered and strong, if I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Katherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Katherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that, that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said, I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with, with grown-ups essentially there. Um, and my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. and. 
So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through Washington DC, stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. I, it was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand, but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was, was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, it helps you make a decision that's, that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the, the concept for me of that if I could do that, that, like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of this story, is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could. And to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now, I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did, and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. 
Um, he said, I couldn't run officially on the team. It was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all. And they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know, <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner, and he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me, and as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days, including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger. And he said, no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance.
And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, And best of all, I've got a running buddy and I'm gonna show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained and oh gosh, I would say it was late March and came the day we were going to do 26 miles in practice. Um, When we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach, was so impressed. He said, wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston, that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on, you're not serious about running another five miles? He said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this. We can do this. And he was just gone on his feet and just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile. Come on, come on. I put my arm through his. I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We can do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, you know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, 
to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul really, really paid off, even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know, for 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men, men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in the in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed um, and I was second guessing myself and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself, with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me, and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete, and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon 
and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success. I realized that women maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world, ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, and with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer. And what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When 
Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine. When she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. The Olympics are the ultimate really in sports recognition and now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that to me was about the physical equality. And that's why it was to me com comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. She has done it. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing. Uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever, but on their back they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. 
We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps. But you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line in 444, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow you, to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware. He had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. 
And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, And to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends. And I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life. And my goodness, that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends, a testimony to how to live a life. What a story, one of our favorites here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, again, go to Our American Network. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Our five best stories will come to you and you'll feel better about being a human being better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.